Okay. Hello. After much work, this has finally taken off here. Um, so I'm Steve, Steven, and I run the Twitter account Snowy Windows. And we've been trying to do this podcast about green energy for a while. And for those of you who don't know me on Twitter, I try to talk about nuclear energy and uranium, but I am nowhere near an expert in those subject matters, much like a lot of the conversations that we'll try to have going forward today and in the future. I will not be an expert. Teddy, who is my current co-host slash guest, I don't know what to call him yet, but he potentially can be an expert. Um, how much more should I give about myself? I could say that for my day job, I price risk in an insurance company. And a lot of this does have some overlap because it does get me thinking, or I try to think daily kind of what are the risks out there in the world? What are the risks to the earth? What are the risks to weather, to catastrophic claims? How is it all intertwined, interconnected? And it is intertwined and interconnected. So that and a lot of uh, personal feelings towards green energy got me into the uranium nuclear space. And now I'm trying to branch out a little bit by broadening that, which brings us to today's topic. And I'm going to let our co-host slash guest introduce the topic as well as himself. So big round of applause for Teddy. Thanks, Steve. I hope you have some kind of soundboard so in the future you can hit a little applause button for each guest. We can. Well, that works too. Appreciate it. So, uh, as Steve mentioned, my name is Teddy, and I am doing a PhD in the science of climate change. So, what are the physical understandings that we need to know what the climate is doing in the face of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions? So while that research is something that I'm really passionate about, and I would say that my expertise is specifically limited to the science of climate change, inevitably um, working on these kind of topics makes one interested in wider horizons, like Steve is saying, that if you think about risk analysis, you're thinking about climate science, these questions are gonna lead to more questions. And one thing that I'm really excited to talk to you today about, Steve, is green energy and what the energy infrastructure of the future is going to look like in some ways, because that's definitely the 100 pound gorilla in the room when it comes to what our climate change outcomes really are. And it's something that while I would not claim to be an expert on, I've definitely been thinking about and I know you have too. So it'll be great to talk about it. Okay. Um, so I will say, can I ask you this? I hope you're comfortable with this. I went to U of I and I got a undergraduate degree there. What is your educational background like? Sure. So I did a bachelor's in physics at Williams College. I got a master's in education doing Teach for America in between then and my PhD. And I am now doing a PhD in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. So aka Teddy has a bigger educational background than me, but I'm hoping my opinion will be shown shined on louder than his here. 
because I think it, I still have some valid points. Well, I really hope we don't live in a world where we just compare degrees because there's a lot of dum-dums at top schools, and I might be one of them, so it shouldn't come down to that. <laughs> That's a good point. So today's topic is going to be, I'm hoping that we're focusing on vehicles. I am throwing in some curveballs here. We've been trying to get this podcast off the ground for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, the original discussion was going to be about plug-in hybrid vehicles versus battery electric vehicles. What is going to be the future going forward? Um, mm-hmm. I'm also throwing in hydrogen because I've been hearing that more. Uh, okay, fun. Let's do that. I, I know you might not have too much expertise on it. And again, that's not the purpose of this podcast. We're both not claiming to be experts in this exact topic, but uh, it'll be fun to converse about this. So Absolutely. I wanted to start here. I'll take the first swing at this, but what, what I'm about to do and what I'm going to ask you to do after is what do you think the future holds for vehicles? Let's say through 2040. Um and the process and steps getting to that point. So from my perspective, I'm taking the very simple and clean approach where, in my view, we're just going to go straight to electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, and we're going to use and operate them and slowly increase that percentage of total uh, transportation energy the total transportation energy now is mostly ice vehicles internal combustion engine but i think we could get to ugh, the numbers offhand i'm remembering like 50 percent by 2030 i believe that is the goal stated by the Biden administration yes um, yeah. and many and make car makers at that yes so i i think that's my stance uh, but there, I think there are some valid claims to other uses or other vehicles. But towards 2040, I think we'll even get to like 75% plus battery electric vehicles. How about you, Daddy? Yeah, well, before I can answer that question, I'd like to take one step back, if that's okay. And if you think about the big picture of why we're doing this whole enterprise of switching over our vehicle fleet, the reason is to cut down on carbon emissions. Um, I think that's clear to all of us. But when we think about what it takes to bring down the carbon emissions, I feel a little bit like we kind of always center this discussion around vehicles as if that is the thing that burns fossil fuels. And maybe part of that's because that's how we interact with them. We see the gas coming out of the pump into our cars. But as a grounding point, I think it's worth mentioning that about roughly a third of our emissions come from transportation. And that's not just personal vehicle fleet, but commercial transportation, trucking, shipping, uh, planes. A third comes from industrial processes, such as manufacturing or making fertilizers, etc. And then a third comes from residential heating and residential power consumption. So electricity, heat, gas, etc. So I'm just saying this because I feel like while this is a really important discussion, I almost feel that sometimes there's like too much discussion on EVs alone as a thing we got to do when there's like a whole suite of that. Um, but that said, I would love it to be true, Steve, that we get to 50% EVs by 2030. That would definitely get us on track in terms of that vehicle pie slice to lowering our emissions. 
my concerns though are, are, are a few fold. So one thing that others have spoken about is that you have resource constraints. We have a mining infrastructure globally that's built to handle mining cobalt, nickel, copper for the current demand curve. And if we think about taking EVs from one or 2% of the new vehicle mix to 50% by 2030, we're talking about a massive increase, maybe an orders of magnitude on how much we need. So I'll start by putting a mark on the sand by saying 50% EVs be phenomenal. My pragmatic optimism is 50% plug-in hybrids by 2030. Uh, for 2030, we have 50% vehicles that use battery power, be that plug-in hybrids or EVs, just because I have some concerns about the resource constraint. And I said initially that I have a few fold concerns. I'm going to maybe get into the other ones in a bit. But I'll start by saying, uh, I'd love for you to be right, Steve, but I'm thinking 50% some kind of battery power by 2030. Okay. I, you know what? Everything that you said, I actually agree with, but I'm going to run with it. I, okay, I, let's I, do it. I, I don't think Biden's kind of goal here is I, I think it's more of a like an aspiration yeah something to get the ball rolling get everyone motivated but but a lot of the points you said I, I do agree with so so I'll, I want to bring up one thing which I, I thought was interesting which is um, I don't do this with my actual money but I just personally like the stock market so I like you know look at different securities and think about them and one thing that caught my eye is in the news a few months ago, there were a lot of news articles about uh, Tesla's partnership with Panasonic, that Tesla, market leader in EVs, have great technology, but their batteries actually are made with Panasonic, and Panasonic sold their stick in Tesla, but they're still the main battery supplier. And I was like, huh, Panasonic's doing this kind of thing, and EVs are blossoming in the future, like you're saying, Steve, like maybe I should look at Panasonic as an interesting stock in the future. And in the process of that, I was trying to just look at like who's making the batteries for electric vehicles right now. And there's not so many players and there's not many, so many companies that can really do this at the scales we need to get to half of all cars. We're talking, what, 5 million cars in the United States per year in 2030 that are electric vehicles. Um, so I just like, I'm thinking about this, like aspirationally, like do we even have the industrial capabilities to have the, that many battery makers making that many batteries because Panasonic is kind of like it when it comes to mass scale batteries in America. Uh, there's suppliers from South Korea and Chinese for other vehicle makers outside the United States, but it's pretty limited. And I just feel like we can be optimistic about, but the nuts and bolts of actually making this happen in our economy seems kind of tricky. From my understanding, so I wanted to say, I, I'm calling this, if I didn't already introduce it, this segment as the millennial kind of think tank, millennial think tank. And if you want to have another segment later on, we could have a talk and shop if you want to talk stocks and things like that. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk I shop. Don't, I'm not trying to derail. I'm just saying that I was, I, I'm trying to explain why on earth I'm looking at like battery makers and EV space and past stock. I was just like, eh. Right. Interesting, right. interesting, interesting uh, industry there. And something that we're going to think about more in the future, I'm sure. So something, this very quickly gets above our, um, it throws the water above our heads. Uh, something that we're kind of going to drown in very quickly if you start talking too much about. But 
from my understanding on researching a lot of the lithium, Tesla, of course, has the huge battery manufacturing plants that they're trying to do in Nevada, I think, Nevada. And yeah, um, they have a gigafactory there. Yeah, and around the world. But uh, Australia has an interesting kind of location that they've been trying to set up. I haven't followed on, but they, they've been trying to claim or call their location Lithium Valley as a play on words of Silicon Valley that we have in California and the United States. But that's cute. A, a lot of this, I think, is planned to be like 90% China, something like that. Um, but again, my head starts to get above water or below water on that. Um, I, yeah, so, so maybe China's a way for us to branch out and actually think about a little bit of um, the think tank piece of what it means if we have 50% EVs in 2030. Because once you bring up China, I think the first thing a lot of people start thinking about is geopolitics. You know, China comes up when it comes to tariffs, when it comes to trade wars, when it comes to Taiwan, when it comes to Xinjiang, Southeast Asia, East Asia. And one thing that I think is worth thinking about is how do the geopolitics of China dominating the battery production in the future, um, you know, affect the bigger picture. So, so China is staking out some of these claims. There was a New Yorker article earlier this year that spoke to what's happening in the Congo right now, because the Congo is where a lot of the cobalt in the world's currently mined and as a crucial material for a lot of current EV technologies. And it kind of just documented what's happening to this village in the Congo where it wasn't great to start. You got a lot of neocolonialism, a lot of big multinational corporations making these huge mines. But into this space has now stuff China and these huge Chinese mines now that have bought out many parts of the Congo and have essentially created these like walled compounds where the Congolese people themselves can't go in, can't even work there. It's only Chinese workers imported from China, and they are no longer able to even pass freely upon their own lands that they used to live on. So I just thought it was a kind of interesting example of how this is already kind of heating up. And I'd like to get your take, Steve, on like what happens if China is the source of these electric batteries for 50% of the vehicle fleet in America? Are we okay with that? Are there geopolitical implications? Like... Are there bigger stakes here? Do you think it's going to work itself out? I feel like you took the easy route on that one. <laughs> yeah, that maybe presented a lot of difficult questions to me right there. <laughs> I asked like seven. That's pretty, pretty mean of me. But, um, you know, think tank, think tank, think tank, indeed. So one thing I was, I took a quick walk right before this because I needed to get out after studying for so long. Um, there, no matter what route we go, we're going to be using lithium ion. That's a projected future. And I'm almost 100% certain on that. And what I mean by that is if we're doing plug-in hybrids, that's also going to be lithium ion. And that will also use cobalt. If we're going to go through the hydrogen vehicle, that's probably a lot smaller of a battery in that car. But I did quickly look it up and they will also at least the Toyota Mariah, I believe it's called, currently uses a small lithium ion battery. So 
everything, there's going to be no avoiding it. And that's the difficult question that's going to be posed and is currently being posed to every vehicle manufacturer. What is the plan? How are we going to avoid the Congo? And it's extremely sad and depressing, but my opinion is that we're just going to continue on and accept that we're going to have to rely on the Congo partially. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there are, in my many hours of research that I put into mining, mining stocks, mining Canadian uh, equities, things like that, which does take a lot of time to do correct research. There are certain types of cobalt mines available in politically, geopolitically, socio-economically more sound regions of the world. It's not to the same degree that's in the Congo, and it's not for the same price, which is why we're still relying on Congo. But it's it's still available, and we could still access it if we really started to push this issue, which I think we should, and is justifiably um, a very bad issue. Yeah. Um, so I so, kind of want to leave it there. I also wanted to say, before you say anything else, uh, that I, I don't think China, we, we can rely on China for all of this. I, I think it is bad that right now, from what I see, they are gearing up to be the major player for all this manufacturing. Um, it, it is very good that Tesla has its battery mega factories, but I, I think the U.S. could do a lot more on the manufacturing side, and we should do a lot more. I agree. I think we're going to agree on this. I don't think there's going to be a ton of debate, which is fine because hopefully we're going to just reach some consensus. What I say is that when you pose a question as like, or pose a statement as we're going to need lithium ion batteries, uh, full electric vehicles need lithium ion, plug-ins need lithium ion, hydrogen need lithium ion. I would add the nuance that the amount that you use definitely ends up mattering. So as an analogy, you know, the U S uses 20 million barrels of oil a day. And that leads to a lot of geopolitical issues that we've had for the last five decades. Saudi Arabia dependence, our interventions in the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you could easily imagine that if we use 2 million barrels instead of 20 million barrels, the geopolitics might be a lot simpler because the U.S. could just get oil from domestic sources and call it a day. And I feel like the same is kind of true when it comes to EVs, where, as you're saying, Steve, there are better capabilities in America. There are mines from maybe more ethical areas with better controls and less exploitation. And ideally, I feel like we want to source as much of our capabilities as possible from domestic battery production, from mines where we trust the process is occurring, and every marginal increase in battery consumption that we're doing is going to extend that to making it so that we need mines from the Congo. So we need Chinese battery makers. And you know, my thinking about plug-in hybrids is why not reduce that extra dependence as much as possible? If plug-in hybrids reduce fossil fuel usage by 90% and do so without taxing our cobalt resources and making us depend on Chinese battery makers, why don't we go for that first? And once we get 90% of the way there, we can start worrying about the last 10% when the geopolitics start getting really tricky. 
I, I, yes. I, I think your points are valid. Again, I still don't think that's the direction we're going to go. Plug in hybrids. Well, but... yeah, I think, oh, yeah, so in that sense, I think you are right, Steve. I think the energy and the politics are towards electric cars. We have this idea that electric cars are the future. There's, I think, a seductiveness to having the idea that we're not emitting any fossil fuels when we plug this car and drive it off. And zero feels so much better than 10%, just as free feels so much better than any cost for anything. Uh, my concern is just, I think the easy politics might not lead to easy results. Yeah, I think those are valid points. Um, defending very quickly the battery electric vehicle side, there are ways to continually reduce the cobalt demand and need, such as the lithium iron phosphate batteries that are used in the cheaper models of Tesla and most of the cheaper models of other cars. It still does use cobalt and i'm not sure actually i i would almost guess that plug-in hybrids probably do use lithium iron phosphate batteries already so again it would still be compounding co compoundingly dip uh less that would be used in a plug-in hybrid but we could slowly decrease our demand for that through other technologies or battery types. Absolutely, it'd be, it'd be sweet for sure if we could find a way to improve our battery technology and reduce demand. I can't claim to be an expert on that. And maybe it'd be awesome if we did a interview with someone who didn't know more about the battery technology space because I think you're right that a lot of these future outcomes are contingent upon how much technology evolves and changes what it actually means to make a battery for an electric vehicle. I think you're totally right about that. Yeah. There's some people out there. I don't know how interested they would be in us personally. But Just got to fly into the DMs. Give it a shot. See what happens. Okay. It does there's, only, there's, only, there's only 2 million podcasts in America right now. So only 2 million. So we're kind of special, Steve. We're, we're one in. We're literally one in a million. Times two. Yeah. Yeah. We're literally one in a million. But like in a not special way. The opposite like, of special. I like that. I like that. Okay. So we're going to continue on. Um, we both, yeah, I, I think we, we, we've explored that topic as much as we kind of can. The next topic I kind of want to bring up though, is I, I think I want to do this on paper. If you were to pick a, a vehicle on paper, uh, let's ignore the geopolitical risks. W which car do you think would be the best? Which vehicle type do you think would be the best and why? I could test you if, if, if you don't feel like answering, I could, I could tell you the answer, but. So what, what am I doing with the vehicle? Am I, am I like driving Uber with it? Am I taking it just as a daily commuter? Okay. What, what's the, what's the use case for the vehicle? That's exactly the first question that you need to ask. Yeah. So it depends, I suppose. I, I, I think most people only need it for commuting, right? So probably. 30 mile trips throughout a typical work week and then a potentially yeah. a vacation once in a while where you go 100 plus miles away or 200 miles away yeah so so i asked that because for me i really think that's where the decision kind of comes down to is how often are you extending beyond that 30 mile standard commute 
because as someone who has been standing plug-in hybrids for the first part of the podcast, it won't surprise you that I really do kind of think that for most use cases, for most people, we might want to believe that we're taking these long, beautiful road trips and taking weeks off of work to explore the Badlands or Utah, but we're probably not going to usually. And in that case, the plug-in hybrid is probably going to be using only its battery for maybe, I don't know, 90 or 95% of our driving. And when that's the case, I'm feeling pretty good about the plug-in hybrid. I know that there's probably some extra complexity to having a dual drivetrain, electric and gas. Obviously, when you're taking a long road trip, gas is not as good as electricity. But the point I make for the plug-in hybrid is that battery capacity that you're using maybe once a year for that road trip, that didn't come for free. There's a lot of carbon emissions that occur when that battery is manufactured. I'm sure the BEV stands will tell me how it's an amazing sustainable process and there's so little used, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is that these giant multi-kilowatt hour battery packs cost thousands of dollars, are very industrially expensive, and no matter what, are using resources in a way that you don't have to with just an empty metal tank. So I think for most cases, pragmatically, I would say plug-in hybrids seem pretty dope. Okay. I like that. So a lot of that, again, it went back to the industrial side and your practical use is what you kind of relied on there a lot. And I think that's extremely valid for a lot of people because electric cars, again, are limited at that battery. Electric vehicles are limited at the 200 to 300 kind of range for a reasonable car. Yep. Um, what... Right, and that, that's a good point, too, is that there's a selfish benefit to be able to fill up at a pump in three minutes to charging for 40 minutes. And just practically, you know, a plug-in hybrid gets you a little more convenience and flexibility. But even just for rental reasons, I think I kind of see it as a kind of a toss-up between the two, uh, which probably isn't the way it's usually presented. I would say, though, that I'm not categorically ignoring BEVs. I asked about the use case because if you're driving Uber or you have a long commute, and a lot of that time spent in your car would be off of that first 30 miles in a day. BEV sound great then. Hopefully the electricity grid that you're plugging into is pretty renewable, but it's pretty likely, I feel like, that you'd actually have a lot more carbon reduction from a Tesla or a Mach-E, that plug-in hybrid if you're driving it all day, every day, a lot. Yeah, again, well, I'll hit you back on this one. I mean, I think you just said it there at the end, but also like if you are driving Uber, time is money and in that respect that you might want the ability to go to the gas station to fill up in two minutes it is way cheaper though to fill up with electricity that is that's is a nice thing you get it with the tesla okay so let's 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 go on to this point which i also wanted to make if, if we start looking at this all on paper what do you think the so so we have we have four vehicles here let's say we have four vehicles here we have the battery electric vehicle we have the yes. hydrogen vehicle, the plug-in, the and the ICE, the internal combustion engine. How would you rate the efficiency, like the the amount of energy used by the vehicle to move the person? Um, how would you rank those in terms of efficiency? So are, you're saying in terms of like joules expended from the source to move someone a given mile like yes. a person yes exactly yeah i used to have these numbers in front of me because i 
I kind was, of have uh, them in my head. So so okay, because so I say I, I know, yeah. But I, I want to test you. I want I want to see I want to see what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I mean, the probably question is where are the where are the inefficiencies? So with the ICE vehicle, I remember it being about two percent of the calories in the gasoline make it into forward momentum, and that's because you have a lot of losses in the engine. Your loss is the transmission, you have rolling friction, air resistance, et cetera, and that's being 2%. The EV is much better because the electric drivetrain is far more efficient than the ICE drivetrain, and you have far less loss in the motor and the transmission. That said, a lot of your losses come before you even put the foot in the gas because your power plant might have efficiencies of around 30 to 40% for a coal-fired power plant, and you have transmission line losses, you have conversion losses, so while I think an EV is probably still more efficient per calorie than an ICE vehicle, I'm not sure it's as close as it might seem if you consider the actual electricity production. That's my guess. Yeah, so I think that was good. There was a quick website on, well, I was partially looking on Volkswagen and a few other websites. Volkswagen or Volkswagen? Was it their April Days meme site? Wait. Are, are, you're Did you hear about this? No. Okay, so 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 Volkswagen VW the company they had a PR release um, in April that said they're changing their name from Volkswagen to Volkswagen, like Volts the unit of power. Gosh. And people were like, "What the hell?" And actually, their stock went up a lot that day. They later said it was an April Fool's Day joke, and they're going to be Volkswagen still, and. I'm pretty sure there's a lawsuit going on right now for that. Is there? They should have just went straight to the Dogecoin wagon. Yes. But then they would have mooned, and that would be terrible because they'd all be trillionaires. <laughs> okay. I like that. So. And what you're saying, you went to this website, and what, what, what did they say about the efficiencies? Yeah. So I, you expanded out a little bit, and I, I do appreciate that. But taking it from the point of transmission, the source and assuming that's a hundred percent. If you assume the, uh, what is it? The power plant is a hundred percent efficient. Then mm -hmm. you subtract like 10% for power line emission loss. And I wanted to almost preface this as well, where th there's plenty of forms of energy in the world. Um, the main ones that we're kind of talking about probably right now are heat and electricity. And if you were to take a battery and fully charge it and then use that battery to charge another battery and use that new battery to charge the next one and so on and so forth, you'll slowly get less and less power as you continue on down this line slash train kind of, because a lot of that energy is partially lost due to heat. I, that's probably actually the only real loss that occurs. There might be some chemical inefficiencies in the battery as well that slowly kind of degrades the power as it moves down the line as well. But then it turns into heat. You're right, that's all heat at the end. Okay, so it's all heat, basically. So power line, the transmission, it's around 10%. And then once you get it into the battery, you have to charge it. And some of the charge is also lost as heat as the battery heats up or as the battery charges heats up. They were saying, I think it's around 75% to 90% efficiency in an electric vehicle. 
And I think that's an amazing goal if we could achieve that. Cause... Now, now, the 79% is from the perfectly efficient power source to the battery. Yeah. It's 7590. Okay. And then you're moving the wheels and you, what is it called in physics terms? Physical motion? Mechanical motion? I think it's mechanical motion. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the, you know, I guess the end goal that you want is just the acceleration that you're getting in your vehicle, which is coming from a force applied over a distance which comes to work. So I guess our end goal, right, is the, is the work performed by the power source. Yeah. So that's the scientific way of putting it. So that's around, yeah, 75 to 90%. Then I didn't know plug-in hybrid, but I'm assuming it's going to be somewhere in between because hopefully, well, you will match actually the battery electric vehicle if you're only using the battery, but then you'll slowly push that down towards what I believe the ICE percentage is, is 17% to 20% from what I saw. I, I just heard you say the 2% number, so it kind of shook. The two, well, so the, I think it really depends on how far down you want to go because the 2% is like, you know, rolling friction and air resistance which a lot of people would say is just part of driving a car. So they wouldn't really count that as losses. Okay. Um, so I think there's just a little bit of flexibility in terms of where you actually say the inefficiencies are and how far down you go with it. There, There is one thing to say, though, which is um, I think people kind of just assume like, oh, ice, like that's boomer dinosaur stuff, dead and gone. There is still innovation happening in the ice space. Like there are great engineers who are making the internal combustion engine more efficient. There's great engineers making transmission more efficient, improving the material science of tires so you have less rolling resistance, et cetera, et cetera. So a kind of sneaky improvement we're gonna see in the next 20 years is that I do believe ICE vehicles, absent any battery technology, are gonna become truly more efficient. You'll see the miles per gallon go from 20s and 30s to 30s, 40s, 50s. That seems inevitable, and it's just great. I mean, I think that doesn't mean we should stop adopting new technologies. But it's nice to know that the baseline progress, I think, does still roll on when it comes to ICE vehicles. That's interesting. One of the main benefits, I mean, I always thought about as the plug-in hybrids, electric vehicles, battery, so on, are the ability to recapture the energy during braking and other things like that. But I, I don't think there's any plans for straight-up gas vehicles to do anything similar. But Beyond a Prius, which already kind of did that. Eh, but that's, oh, the hybrid. Then you could add like a fifth or sixth car. I forgot how far we are down the chain. Now. Yeah, well, so so we haven't gotten to this yet, but you want to curveball the hydrogen vehicle. Yes, here we go. So I, I want to hear your take first. What, what did you want to throw out there with the hydrogen vehicle? So this could lead to the next topic that I really wanted to talk about, but... The interesting perspective on this one is that from what I was seeing, it was around, now I'm forgetting the number, but I think it was around 30% efficient when you take it from being produced to then you have to compress it and deliver it and store it. And then the battery has to, or the car has to use the fuel cell and convert uh, hydrogen to water and produce electricity from there. But 
the interesting thing is the fact that would be about, well, they say two to three times more energy to use hydrogen vehicle compared to a battery electric vehicle. Yeah. Which would be absolutely insane because, again, during my walk just before this, I was thinking about it, but we don't really use too much energy to mine gasoline, mine oil. Uh, but if we were to create hydrogen for vehicles and things like that, we would have to use, make that from scratch kind of air quotes. Um, because yeah. we're not going to be mining that in the ground. We're just going to have to use a power plant and, and convert, I believe, the water, the liquid, into uh, from H2O to H. Yeah, I believe I believe there is a second option, which isn't something that seems very savory, which is, you're right that water electrolysis is pretty freaking tough. Like, water is a pretty stable substance, which implies that it takes a lot of energy to undo it. It's not going to be easy, and I think Volkswagen is being generous by saying it's less efficient by a factor of two or three in electricity, and we don't have beautiful hydrogen bubblers that just release pure hydrogen gas that we can just kind of can up and use. As you're saying, it's difficult. The other one that's less energy intensive but doesn't seem great is you can uh, crack natural gas compounds, namely methane, and get hydrogen from methane, but in doing so, you're using fossil fuels. It's much more efficient. You get hydrogen gas out of it, but it's just a way of using natural gas. That's interesting. So it's funny. Something that people have been saying in articles recently is that in no way is it at all better to use hydrogen compared to the battery electric vehicle if you use anything beyond renewable energy to create the hydrogen. Because... I mean, I, I'm curious, I, I haven't seen this uh, methane kind of uh, topic that you've talked about just now, but but using coal to create, using coal power plant to create hydrogen is just, again, because you're, you're using the greatest amount of energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just burn the coal in your car, have a steam, have a steam shovel, you know, like, it's just be better. Yeah. And it'd be pretty cool. It'd be steampunk. So, it turns some heads. So I'm, I'm curious, do, do you think there's any chance that we use hydrogen in the future? Yeah, so I would say near term, no. Medium term, no. Long term, maybe. <laughs> near medium term, you're given great reasons why this feels a bit like a fool's errand. Hydrogen is really inefficient to manufacture if our energy grid is not clean there's no way we can really get clean hydrogen because even if you use a solar panel to make the hydrogen gas that seems stupid f when we have a dirty grid and that same solar panel could just be feeding clean electricity to your house like that would displace coal so why would you take the solar panel get less energy out of a turn into hydrogen and do something with the hydrogen that seems like really wasteful with the limited renewable resources we have so Near term, I really feel like hydrogen makes no sense. Yeah. Medium term argument, I would get for hydrogen does not make sense, is a pragmatic economic one, which is that hydrogen is not easy to move around. So it's a gas and it's a very expansive gas. 
like at room temperature, standard pressure, it takes up huge volumes. I'm trying to think right now, just off the top of my head, how much space it takes to hold hydrogen, but a mole of hydrogen gas is like a gram. It's the that fills element. 22 liters. Yeah, so if you had a kilogram of hydrogen, which is not so much hydrogen, it felt like, you know, multiple rooms at room temperature. So to store it, you have to make these huge pressures. You have to press the hydrogen down. And when you do that, you're kind of playing with fire a little bit, right? Like high pressurized canisters and tanks and pipelines, they can burst. They need a lot of safety mechanisms, safety valves. And what I am heard explained to me is how on earth this is going to be a cheaper option than almost every other one out there. Because right now, today, there's the technology and the means and a much greater economic incentive to have natural gas cars and vehicles. Because natural gas has half the emissions of gasoline, it is cheap, it's abundant, and actually takes lower pressures than hydrogen gas would. Right now, it would be 25 to 30 times cheaper to fill up your car with natural gas than equivalent amount of hydrogen gas. Well, I, I've never have you have before. you seen a natural have you seen a natural gas car around your neighborhood recently, Steve? I've seen the the only thing that when you said that, I thought of was I've seen that used for forklifts. I think mm -hmm. where they have a tank on the back. But yeah, are there actually natural gas cars out there? I've seen one in maybe the past five years. They actually do exist, wow. and they're like kind of like a little like nerd sub nerd sub niche of like <laughs> cool cars. Not cool in a very common sense, but like a, hey, look, I'm doing something different and it's better for the environment. Do you know who makes that? I think, this was a while ago. I think I saw someone with like some kind of Honda that was natural gas. Interesting. Compressed natural gas. It says like CNG on it. Okay, so now, so I mean, the main question was, well, so it's not some small company that's making it. You're pretty sure that it's a one of the major ones, if not. Yeah, and 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 like a, a while ago they did this. It's been this technology's been around for decades, and I guess the the point I'm trying to make here, which I think you're getting at, is like this is established technology. Natural gas is relatively cheap, and no one is using it, which tells me that the storage, the transport, it's just the bear to deal with. It's like really inconvenient, and if you have hydrogen technology revolutions. I mean, absolute breakthroughs in every single facet of the manufacture of hydrogen, the transport, the drivetrains and actual implementation of the vehicle. You have breakthroughs all up and down the chain. And you make hydrogen gas 30 times cheaper. It's the same value proposition now as natural gas, which nobody uses. So in the medium term, you gotta get hydrogen not 30 times cheaper, maybe 100 times cheaper. And I don't see how anybody can tell me with a straight face that this is going to happen by 2040 or make up a number for it, because that feels like nuclear fusion. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you... One of the YouTube channels that I do follow kind of frequently is Physics Girl. I don't know if you've ever heard about her, but she's... Think... Yeah, she's uh, she's our age, and she's from the Chicago area. Oh, I didn't know she's from Chicago. Yeah, I believe she is our year, and she went to... Uh... She went to MIT because she's she's a physics girl. Yeah, she knows she's knows what she's doing. Yeah, she does. So she she she's been doing very recently, and and why I also wanted to throw hydrogen in here, like the past week, she just started a new series for within her main channel, hydrogen vehicles, 
and it's sponsored by Toyota. But one of the interesting things, <laughs> yeah. Uh, something I wanted to point out though, and you were talking about how it's so difficult to pressurize these canisters and everything or contain the hydrogen. Toyota apparently has these impermeable tanks that they use and they've done various drop tests and they've done other kind of just stress tests on these tanks and they made it so strong and impermeable that the only way that they were and they had to test what would happen if it broke under pressure and the only way they were able to do so was by using armor penetrating bullets which apparently it's probably a big boom i don't think it was um because really? i i think the construction or I, the integrity is what i want to say of the tank was able to hold because of just how they built it so I guess my thing is like that's dope. That sounds like breakthrough technology. Why is it Toyota using this to sell natural gas cars? Yeah, yeah. So I, I just wanted to speak to the tank because I found that interesting. But I agree with you on every other point. I don't think. Yeah. My, my question is just like if hydrogen vehicles are really so dope, like Toyota says, why aren't they selling natural gas cars that would outcompete every gasoline car on the market for half the carbon usage? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't add up to me. I, I agree with you there. So. I had one last topic I wanted to go through. Did you have anything more to say here? Or should we try to do this last topic? I will say that I feel like one thing I want to caveat is that I have feelings about hydrogen. They may be very misguided. So if someone listening to this is like, whoa, pump the brakes, Teddy. Like, that was wrong. You gave a wrong number there. I fully own that because I feel like the probably things have changed since I last looked at these numbers. And I will definitely come back and say where I was wrong if someone points out that I'm wrong. If you have hate mail for Teddy, I'll leave an email in the description. And you're more than welcome to express all of your hate there. Yes. <laughs> the The best way that you can show hate for me is by giving Steve a five-star review. That really shows how much you hate me. <laughs> I don't know if you could review a podcast. Maybe on iTunes. Yeah. Okay. So this last topic that I wanted to go through was security grid security and and this is actually where i and i did you answered that there's no short medium term future for hydrogen but the vehicle emissions or the vehicle energy use from what i saw is around 30 percent of the total energy use in the world uh, probably even a little bit less around 27 to 29 but that's almost purely using gasoline right now. And what we're talking about proposing to do, well, what I'm talking about proposing to do, you're still on the hybrid kind of side or the, uh, whatever it was, the, the plug-in with the gas alternator. But we would have to transform this, this one third, well, large sizable chunk of energy and put it onto the grid. And right now it is diverse in that we have a gas side to transportation and that residential and industrial uses the grid. But there's a security threat that what happens if the grid goes down, we're suddenly 100% reliable on the grid, essentially. And this is where I start thinking that there needs to be other 
sources of electricity, other sources of energy, and why gas is actually kind of good. Well, one quick question on this, though, is like, you know, say say the grid seriously goes down, how, how are we getting gasoline to the cars as well? Like, I don't think we can hand pump them. I feel like we do need a grid for even their fossil fuel economy too, don't we? That's an interesting point. I thought I thought a lot of do gasoline stations actually use electricity to pump? I thought it was all kind of by volume and just pressure. If you both the pressures and you have a pump, it needs to be from some power source. Uh, a tanker. Well, that's what I was thinking that they initially pressurize it when they're filling it up. Right, but gasoline's liquid, so you it, the pressures alone would get the gasoline into your tank. It would have to be. I think it, there's a pump. Like you need a pump. I mean, you know, maybe a gas station can run a generator, but at the end of the day, I do feel like the grid's important. There's no way around it. Doesn't doesn't negate your point by the grid security because it's important. I think it's. Uh, probably just as important as it gets huh. I'll, I'll, i mean you could and for a lot of things we're probably still going to use there needs to be a contingency plan for backups like generators and, and right now the only thing i could think of is we could do a hydrogen backup generator that uses instead of gasoline hydrogen to create electricity mm -hmm. but so what one question and I, I don't know how it's going to evolve but you know a future where 50 percent of the vehicles are electric and we're talking huge batteries like these are 50 plus kilowatt hour batteries yeah if the grid goes out and you have all these batteries and all these cars could we think about a resiliency strategy where we have the cars plugged into the grid and the grid goes out the cars feed back into the grid and that provides power and then determines liquid comes back on. I've thought about that before. Uh, that would be more of an issue with the actual plant going down though. There, there are ways to cut the grid such as like solar interference where in no way possible that you would actually be able to draw power or push power back onto the grid. Yeah, so you're talking about like a, like a kernel mass ejection yes. that blows the grid. In one respect, yeah, but but also if there is a cybersecurity threat or something like that, where transmission somehow is cut at some source. So one way I was thinking of, um, if we could have, hmm. so this is where I start going away from. For electricity, a lot of the things I talked about on Twitter and things like that was nuclear and uranium, and it's the best power source out there. We don't need anything else, yada, yada, yada. But if we could localize energy production, that would be one of the solutions I was also thinking about. If the grid completely went down and you were able to just sever the line from your house and you had solar panels on your house, you still could operate on a limited basis, but you would still be able to operate. I think I think you need to stick to your gun, Steve. You need a nuclear reactor in every house. <laughs> Maybe one day. We're almost getting yeah. there. A fuel rod in every pot, just like a chicken. <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking about this once. I, I don't want to expand too much more on this. We're, we're getting 
we're, we're pushing the time here, but I, I was thinking about what's the optimal what's the optimal way to produce energy? Is it one huge, large power source for the entire country? Or is it like, how, how much should you divide that up? Should each county have its own power source? Should each house have its own power source? Um, in like a hundred year future, I was just trying to think of what would be our situation there. And and that's where I kind of slowly got, maybe we could have every house have a, a fuel rod. <laughs> <laughs> every house could have a solar panel but yeah well let me let me throw out something that's real this is this is real theoretical but there has been some research i come across where people analyze just network structures interconnections and there's this really interesting way in which if you look at a photo of like the interstates in america or if you look at a photo of the electrical transmission grids in America, they've kind of naturally self-organized into very similar structures as an image of blood vessels in the human body. Which I think is just kind of a really cool thing. So like, what, what I'm getting at is there's some kinds of structures that if you have rational or just evolutionary thought put into it, kind of both accomplish the goals of efficiency and redundancy. So if we think about the human body, we have these like major trunk line arteries that our body works hard to protect, you know, like we put the carotid in our neck so we don't absolutely mess it up because we're aware of where it is. But when it comes to the smaller arteries and veins, if there's a cut there, there's other veins and arteries and blood vessels that kind of step in and supply nutrients to the tissue to keep it alive until the blood vessel heals so if i cut my leg in a spot by accident it's not right, all like, of a sudden going to die if right I'm... yeah like that part of the leg's not going to die okay so so i guess what i'm throwing out is what if we kind of do something similar what if we analyze things like anatomical networks or other resilient networks and be like this kind of works well and do a similar thing for electricity grid where we're getting towards that but if we do it systematically we create a grid where we understand fully like these are the trunk lines we need these to be healthy we need to protect these but then other ones there's necessary redundancies that act like the human body or if one goes down others can naturally fill in i like that and that's one of the reasons why you should always live next to a hospital because <laughs> <laughs> that's the carotid um whatever of the electrical system you would always be on the important grid and you would never lose power Ah, I said okay. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like if you actually cut your leg and it was oh. a uh, it was a it was a serious wound. <laughs> you get to the hospital within ten minutes. I went for a twofold joke there, and you found the other side of it. So thank you. Yeah, you really, really covered that one. <laughs> okay, well, I I think this was a pretty we we covered a lot of topics here, and I think a lot of it, it it's hard to fully discuss you're kind of just at an impasse because there's no solution but some of it we can do better on and we talked about some of those points here i threw out the solution plug-in hybrids are dope but people aren't going to listen so you're right no solution uh no solution the solution is battery electric vehicles are the future and they're the most dope so we're going to end it there i don't care what teddy says unless he has any last words but i'd like to thank him for coming on Hopefully he continues to co-host slash 
guest star in a lot of these episodes going forward. But thanks for kicking this thing off. First episode down. All right. Well, thanks, Stephen. I, I have some other things that I can actually talk about with a little more fluency, too. So uh, at least let me add a couple more if you don't get too much hate mail. We could say that you're a master in a few topics, hopefully going forward. So that would help out. Thanks for the offer. Thanks, everyone, Absolutely. for listening. Have a good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.